We shall turn now to the portion read in the book of the Revelation, the chapter 13. And we shall continue to observe what is written regarding this great red dragon and his warfare with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it is to be remembered that the particular target of the warfare of the great dragon is the man-child referred to in chapter 12. Uh, His purpose was to devour the man-child as soon as he would be born. He was defeated in this purpose, and we read in verse 5, as we said, this is a summary of the whole life and ministry of the Savior. She brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. He was born, and he was born to rule, and he was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Now, when we come to chapter 13, we see another competing rule over the nations. But he is born to rule all nations, who was divinely appointed, divinely purposed, divinely decreed, whatever opposition there would be, he would rule all the nations. And he was caught up unto God and to his throne. Now, this dragon is particularly opposed to the man-child, but As we noted last Lord's Day, the warfare takes place in heaven and the devil is cast out because the glorious Redeemer is exalted. The accuser is cast out and the great advocate is seated in majesty and in glory. Now, Because the man-child is exalted and safe, the Redeemer, then the target becomes the woman who brought him forth. The target becomes the church. And in verse 6 of chapter 12, we are told the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God. God has a place of refuge and a place of safety for her, that they should feed her there for a thousand two hundred and threescore days, or forty and two months, and so on, the time period that we've referred to on several occasions. We read in verse 14 of the chapter 12, To the woman 
were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness. Uh, the wilderness, of course, that is referred to back in uh, verse 6, a place prepared by God. But how does she get there to that place? She is given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place. Into her place. Where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent, the same period of time as is mentioned in verse 6. Now the devil, of course, uh, seeks to destroy the woman, the church, preventing her from being in the place appointed and the serpent cast out of his mouth, verse 15, water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. So he feels again. Now what does he do? The dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with a remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now he begins, as it were in modern terminology, guerrilla warfare against the church. He begins a war of terrorism, as it were. He's defeated. He knows he's defeated. He is uh, well aware that he has been cast out of heaven. He is aware that his attempts to destroy both the man-child and the church have failed. So he begins then a war of terrorism against the remnant of uh, the seed of the woman, as I said. He is the roaring lion that goeth about, seeking whom he may devour, and he will never rest, no matter how defeated he is. He will never rest while there is one remaining saint of God. He is determined to do as much damage as he can to Christ's cause. Now when we come to chapter 13, we are brought then to see the accomplices of the great red dragon. And here we come to see the satanic evil trinity that is in opposition to the divine eternal trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We also become aware here in this chapter of what exactly this war is all about. Why does the devil bother to war? 
why, when he's defeated, does he continue to engage in this warfare? And we see what concerns him most. Now, first of all, remember that he is the great red dragon with his seven heads, we are told in verse 3 of chapter 12. A great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon the heads. Now keep that in mind. When we come to chapter 13, another beast arises out of the sea. Now cast your minds back a little to when we were considering the glorious angel, the great angel. He lifted up his hand and swore to heaven in chapter 10. He stood upon the sea and upon the earth, and he swore by him that liveth forever and ever. Now, what did he do? He put his foot Uh, As we saw earlier, one foot upon the sea, the other upon the land. You understand in history that when various European powers were seeking to discover new parts of the world, those who were the great explorers when they would come to new lands or new territory, what did they do? They set their foot upon the land. They planted the emblem of their authority, the flag of their country, of their monarch, and they claimed that land for the monarch. And it became part of their dominions. You have the Spanish and the English and the Dutch and so on, all seeking to discover new territory. And of course, here in Australia, New Zealand, the same thing happened. The great angel who planted one foot upon the earth and upon the sea He is claiming, as we read in chapter, uh, the uh, chapter 12, the one who was born was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. They all belong to him. The angel that put his foot and one foot in the land and the other upon the sea, he's claiming all the nations for Christ, the glorious King of kings and Lord of lords. Now we must also remember what we said at the time we were looking at that portion, that while he puts his foot on the land and upon the sea, claiming it, 
This is before any of these beasts actually appear, before they rise out of the sea or before they rise out of the earth. And he already then, as it were, symbolically has his foot on the neck of his enemies before they even appear they're defeated, before they even appear to begin their dastardly work, he already has his foot upon their necks. He's already victorious, and they're already defeated. But, as we see from this chapter 13, the war goes on. Now let's look at the comparison between the great red dragon with his seven heads and his ten horns and seven crowns upon his seven heads. Look at the description of the beast that rises up out of the sea, out of chaos, verse 1 of chapter 13. Notice how he is described. He has seven heads and ten horns. Just the same as the great dragon. But there is a difference now. He has seven heads and ten horns, and he has ten crowns upon his heads. The dragon has seven crowns upon his seven heads. This a beast that rises up out of the sea, he has ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy, but uh, he is different in that he has crowns upon his horns. The, the dragon has the crowns upon his head. The beast that rises up out of the sea He has seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns, ten crowns. Now the crowns, of course, do speak of authority. They speak of majesty. They are symbolic of triumphs. Notice then the crowns and the dragon are on his seven heads. The crowns and the beast that rises out of the deep, out of the sea, they are upon his horns. Now, we are not to think, well, there's little significance about just a minor difference. The uh, dragon has seven heads that clearly indicate the power of his intelligence. The power of his mind, as Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The dragon has seven heads by which he plans, he plots, he schemes, he lays out a strategy by which he is determined to oppose the church of Jesus Christ. 
Here we have the beast rising out of the sea, and he's got ten horns, just like the dragon. But where are the crowns? They're not on his heads. The crowns are on his horns. Now you go back to the Old Testament, and you will see that horns again and again are a symbol of political power. Again and again you see this. And you go to the book of Daniel, probably more than anywhere else, you see uh, the horns on these beasts and the push with their horns and so on. It was a symbol of political power. Now here this beast, where are the crowns? On the horns, his majesty, his authority is bound up with his power, uh, his might, the arm of the flesh, political power, more than the intelligent power or the power of his intelligence in the seven-headed beast. Now, in this chapter 13, although we won't get to the third beast, but it is interesting to see how he completes this vicious, evil uh, trinity. Verse uh, 11, I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. The first beast comes out of the sea. The second beast comes out of the earth. But before they come, the mighty angel has laid his foot upon the land and upon the sea. Notice this beast. He has two horns like a lamb, and he speaks as a dragon. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him. He exercises all the power of the previous beast that is coming out of the sea. He exercises the same degree of power, the same kind of power, and yet he is described differently. He has two horns like a lamb, and he speak as a dragon, and he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him. But in addition... He has another peculiar form of power. You go down to verse 15. He had power to give life unto the image of the beast. He possesses quickening power. We have the Father, we have the Son... We have the Holy Spirit in the divine eternal trinity. Now the Holy Spirit, what did Jesus say he would do when he would come into this world? He will not speak of himself. He will testify of me. He will act on my behalf. He will lead you into all truth. He will be the paraclete that I have been. 
I hear this second beast that comes out of the earth. He possesses all the power of the first beast. But he is among the persons of this evil trinity. He has the power of quickening. As it were, an imitation, a false imitation of the divine Holy Spirit, the quickener. It is the Spirit that quickeneth. He has power to give life. Who has power to give life that Jesus speaks about to Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John's Gospel? Doesn't Jesus teach clearly that spiritual life is the result of the divine activity of the third person of the Trinity? So you see, here we shall come to this uh, second beast later, but I'm just for the moment drawing attention to the completion, as it were, of this wicked evil trinity that is engaged in warfare against uh, the God of eternity, against the throne of his glory, against the man-child, the Christ of God, who's in that throne, and against the Holy Spirit's activities, who is quickening those who are dead in trespasses and in sins. Now notice how this first beast then is described. Verse 2, on his heads, the name of blasphemy, but verse 2, the beast which I saw was like a leopard and his feet as the feet of a bear and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Now, when God created the animal kingdom and he sent, he laid upon Adam the responsibility to name all the various creatures, Adam did it and God was satisfied with what Adam called them. Here is a beast that is typical, not like any beast that God ever created. This is a strange beast, part leopard, part bear, part lion, and speaking like a dragon. Strange combination of features. But then, when Daniel, or, or when John sees this beast coming up out of the waters, peculiar beast, as we've said, he would go back again and again and again to the Old Testament. And his mind would go back to the prophecies, to what the prophets had to say. And if he would go back to Daniel, uh, for example, to the seventh chapter of Daniel, he finds there descriptions 
of uh, creatures that were representing kingdoms yet to arise in the history of the people of God. In Daniel chapter 7, you have four great beasts, verse 3, came up out of the sea, diverse one from another. Now, then if you look at the descriptions, you see one was a lion and an eagle's wings, and then you have another like a bear, and then you have another like a leopard, and then you have the fourth beast that is diverse from all the rest and terrible beyond description. Now, what is John seeing? He is seeing a combination of the powers and of the characteristics of these great empires that have gone before. Here is something that possesses the same powers, the same characteristics combined into one. Like a leopard, but with the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion and so on. So John is seeing this beast that symbolizes all the previous heathen, godless, anti-god empires that have gone before. And it is as though they're all being revived in this beast. If you go back to the book of Daniel, you see these beasts represented, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, and the Roman Empire, and so on. And it's as though John is seeing all these ancient powers, these anti-God, these heathen systems, they are all being revived now. And they're all coming forth in this beast that comes out of the sea. But remember, this is the second beast of this evil trinity. We then see how, and it is important, I think, to note it, parallels, very important parallels between the persons of the Trinity, particularly the second person of the Trinity, the Lamb in the midst of the throne, the man-child that is exalted to rule the nations. Parallels between what is said about him and what is said about this second beast. If you, for example, go back to the chapter 5, and uh, we we may not be able to refer to them all, but I hope we shall refer to enough to uh, satisfy you that there is a very definite parallel between the eternal son and this second uh, beast or this first beast that comes out of the sea 
In chapter 5, verse 6, we read, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. Notice, as a lamb, as it had been slain. Then when we go to chapter 13 and verse 3, what do we read? And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death. You see the parallel? Wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed. And there is a reference here, as it were, to a death and a resurrection. The lamb that was slain rose again on the third day and ascended up on high. Here is this beast coming out of the sea and he receives a deadly wound and he is, as it were, slain. Yet, we're told that his wound was healed and the world wandered after the beast. And the, they worshipped the dragon which gave power to the beast. In the chapter 7 of Revelation, verse 3, we read there, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Now, we're not going to go back over that ground, but this was the sealing, the marking, to protect the saints of God. Now, you see this again in chapter 14, verse 1. John says, I looked and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion and with them an hundred, forty and four thousand, having their father's name written in their foreheads. Now, look at chapter 13, verse 6. Chapter or 16, I should say, verse 16. And he, this is the second beast, of course. <coughs> he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their forehead. So you have these two companies. The saints are sealed to be protected. Here are these under the dominion of the dragon and the first beast and the second beast. What are they? They receive also a mark and a seal as well. In the chapter 5 and uh, verse 6, we are uh, shown there the lamb and he has seven horns and seven uh, eyes. In chapter 13 and the verse 1, what do we read of the beast rising out of the sea? He also has seven heads and so on. And then again in the verse 9 of chapter 5, we down to the end of that chapter, 
you have the song of the redeemed, the church triumphant. Thou art worthy to take the book, the worthiness of the Lamb that was slain is being exalted. Thou art worthy because thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and so on. When we come to chapter 13, verse 7, we read, It was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. So you have these competing powers, these parallel characteristics And this war, on the surface, it would almost appear it's quite evenly matched. But the powers of darkness are already defeated. Now, what is it in particular, before we go any further, that the devil is really seeking. He has been cast out of heaven. What was he doing there? When we go back to chapter 12, when he was cast out of heaven, verse 10, we read, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down. Now, what does that mean if we were to go back, as it were, in our minds into the heavenly realm? What's the accuser doing? He's ruling or attempting to rule and overthrow the church of Christ, the redeemed saints of God, as we looked at. He is exercising authority to condemn, to accuse and condemn the poor people of God. He's cast out. He has lost all that authority. It's all been taken from him. So now he engages in persecuting those that he cannot accuse anymore. Now, you will remember an occasion when the Savior, after his baptism, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Now, what did the devil amongst the temptations, go back with me to the uh, gospel according to Matthew, and there you have in chapter 4 the account of the temptation. What does the devil do amongst the temptations? Verse 8 Of Matthew 4, again, the devil taketh him up 
into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said unto him, All these will I give thee. Now what's the bargain? If thou wilt fall down and worship me. Let's agree. Let's strike a bargain. Worship me. And you can have it all. That's the one thing I crave. That's the one thing I want. I want worship. I want to be worshipped. Here we have in the uh, book of the Revelation, it seems his achievement, he is being worshipped. Verse for they were of chapter 13, they worship the dragon, the devil, Satan. They worshiped him. At last, he's accomplished a victory. At last, he's got what he's been seeking. You go back to the prophecy of Isaiah, and there in the chapter 14, we have the prophet writing, And it would uh, appear that he's speaking here of Satan, Lucifer, the son of the morning, the uh, son of brightness. And what do we read? Uh, Just for the sake of time, verse 12 of Isaiah 14, How art thou fallen from heaven? How art thou fallen? How is it that you're fallen, that you've been cast out? O Lucifer, son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne Above the stars of God. I want to be exalted. I want to exercise more power than a creature has the right to exercise. I want to exercise the power and the authority of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Verse 14. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. What was Lucifer seeking? The position of God. He wanted worship. He wanted to be exalted. He craved to be worshipped. He wanted all of creation to bow to him. And when it comes to the time of the temptation, what does he want? 
the eternal son to do. Worship me. Now we have to realize this is part of the reason why when we go back to the chapter 12 and verse 12 we read, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea for the devil is come down unto you having great wrath. Not only because he's been cast out as the accuser and that makes him mad. There's nothing that he delights in more than accusing the people of God. But then he's deprived of even a remote possibility of any worship in heaven. So now he wars to be worshipped among men. Remember what we have, the parallels between the persons of the divine trinity and these beasts, the symbols of the spirit of this evil, devilish trinity. The lamb is being worshipped. Here it is the beast that is being worshipped. And you can see how popular his worship is. We are told that uh, it was given uh, to him uh, to blaspheme and all that dwell, verse 8 of chapter 13, all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Notice that. All that be upon the earth shall worship him. Well, you would think, wouldn't that content the devil now? He's been always wanting worship. And now he should be happy because look what's happening. All the world is worshiping him. Now we have to keep in mind where the church is. It's in the wilderness. Forty and two months she is there being nourished, being preserved. How has she been nourished? Like the church in the wilderness in the Old Testament. God carried the church through the wilderness, providing for her, nourishing her with manna from an high, with quails, with water out of the rock. God nourished the church. You remember in the case of Jacob's sons, famine came and they had to go down into Egypt with the prospect of obtaining green that they might be preserved through the terrible famine. What did Joseph say to his brethren? In the chapter 45, Joseph, remember, he's ruling in Egypt. He's the great ruler and he's in control of the distribution of the grain that had been preserved over seven years. 
in the chapter 45 of Genesis, Joseph has this to say to his brethren, verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save our lives, your lives, by a great deliverance. To preserve you a posterity in the earth. Why? Because there's the promise of the seed of the woman. And this is the line through which the seed is to come. And there is a great famine. But what does Joseph say? God who is the God of the covenant. And God who established the covenant. And God who will keep that covenant. He sent me before you. God's ahead of everything. That's always a great encouragement. Whatever's happening to know God's ahead of of everything else. And he was ahead of the circumstances. And he was ahead of the famine. And uh, Joseph says, God sent me to preserve a posterity and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Now you think this was the reason. Joseph says this is the real reason God sent me. But who was receiving the great blessings along with this posterity? The Egyptians, the ungodly, they had seven years of plenty, the ungodly Egyptians, and they were able to come to Joseph. They ended up selling their lands, going into servitude in order to buy Green, but because of God's redemptive purposes for his own people, the heathen actually benefited. But the one thing that uh, Joseph said to his brethren, verse 11 of chapter 45, bring down your herds, your children, and so on, and there will I nourish thee. For yet, there are five years of famine. They would never have survived those five years, except that God had sent Joseph ahead, and that God had given him the visions and elevated him to that high office. Oh, the wonderful works of God, Joseph is now aware he's waited these years, tried and tested, until his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. Now he's seeing it all opening up. The purpose of God, the redemptive purpose of God, I will nourish thee. And again, you see that when Jacob passes away, when he dies, Joseph again reminds his brethren that he will nourish them, that he will preserve them and keep them. And God is here in Revelation in the visions of John, showing him the church is saved, John. Doesn't matter what's happening, the church is saved. There's a place in the wilderness. 
and she's safe there, and I will nourish her. She won't have her own means to preserve herself. And she won't be able to rely upon any other sources. She won't be able to rely on any other powers to help her, to assist her. I will do the preserving and I will nourish her. She'll be healthy. She'll be healthy in spite of everything. Now, how does God nourish the church? The little prophecy of Amos, we have the worst of all famines mentioned, far worse than any famine in Egypt. A famine that God sends every bit as much. The little prophecy of Amos, chapter 8, verse 11, the prophet writes, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I, I will send a famine in the land. What kind of a famine? Not a famine of bread. There might be plenty of bread. There might be plenty of prosperity. Nor a thirst for water. No scarcity of all these provisions, but of hearing the words of the Lord. The worst of all famines. Prosperity materially. Every provision to meet the physical and material needs of men. They're satisfied with their plenty. The one thing they have not is the hearing of the word of the Lord. There's a great famine there. Now you tell me that such a famine doesn't exist today. Why does it exist? Because God has sent it in judgment. I used to have on my desk, or in my, among my books when I was in Inverness, I don't possess it now, but I had a little book there, and the title was, Why Johnny Can't Preach. Why Johnny Can't Preach. And it was a expounding the various reasons why Johnny couldn't preach. He couldn't preach because he wasn't converted. He couldn't preach because he wasn't called. He couldn't preach because he wasn't properly trained. He couldn't preach because he wasn't gifted. He couldn't preach because he simply didn't know the Scriptures. And there's a lot of Johnnies around today, they haven't a clue how to preach. They have no idea how to handle the Word of God. There's a famine for the hearing of the Word of God. The average evangelical today has no idea how to preach. 
In fact, he's not even interested in finding out how to preach. He's more interested in uh, social activity and providing tins of soup and pastors and whatever else to help the needy. And I'm not against that. But the apostles were sent out not with a cartload of food. They were sent out to preach. How was the world going to be converted? Through the preaching of the gospel. What did Paul say? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to them that believe. And I do not want to be misunderstood. I'm not against works of charity. The church should be the most charitable organization on the face of the earth. And the Lord's people ought to be charitable. And they ought not to say, well, God bless you and may the Lord look after you. Don't expect anything from me. It was interesting. I was reading many years ago there was a, an Anglican minister in one of the parishes in England. And when he arrived in his new parish, he wanted to find out everything he could as much as possible about what kind of a congregation he had. So one day, he dressed up as a trump. And then he went round all the doors knocking like a beggar. And uh, some were chasing him. And they were telling him if he didn't go and skedaddle, they would set the dog on him. And then there were others, they kind of pity for him, and they gave him some alms and some help. And there was others who denounced him as a, a lazy layabout, Deserving nothing. And then there was this particular woman that he come to. And she had a look at him. And she listened to him. And then she said, well, it's just as I would expect. You're a worthless, down and out, useless creature. You don't deserve any charity. Go away and work. So the next Lord's Day, the minister got up into the pulpit and he began to address the congregation and he said what he had experienced. He told them what he experienced. There were a few red faces a few heads bowing in embarrassment, and then this woman really felt guilty. It was the very minister I was denouncing. He came to my door, and I chased him as a beggar. I'm not against works of charity. Christians ought to be charitable. And God may not have sent in this land of plenty a famine 
for bread or for water, but my, he has sent a famine for the hearing of his word. And I believe the evidence is before us all in this land of Australia. They shall wander from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek what? To seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. How many times do I receive information of poor souls who enjoy the sermons coming from the pulpit here who are in isolation have no church to go to can't find any used to be in every every city every town there would have been a sound church at least the gospel was preached it's not that way now because God has sent in his judgment, a famine for the hearing of his word. And that should make us thankful. And we should ever remember the instructions that the Savior gave his disciples. He said, when they receive you, they receive me. When they reject you in your word, they reject me. And therefore, you go out and you shake off the dust of your feet as a testimony against them. And I will take away the bread of life and I will leave them famished for the word of God. Now, when we come back here to the 13th chapter of Revelation, this warfare that's going on, the devil is seeking worship. And what kind of worship does he want? The lamb is being worshipped. He wants worship. And the whole world, we are told, that all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Now, what do we think is going on today? Here we are as a little congregation, endeavoring to adhere to biblical principles, seeking to adhere to the regulative principle, what we call the regulative principle, our worship regulated by the teaching of the Word of God. Our worship is spiritual. Jesus said, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, what is the worship that appeals to all that dwell on the earth? Well, it obviously isn't the spiritual worship. It isn't the worship of God. It is 
sensual worship. You remember how that the devil tempted Eve. Has God said that you can't eat of every tree of the garden? God knows perfectly well. If you eat that fruit, you'll be enlightened. And then what happened? She saw. She acted in response to our senses. That's the devil's practice, to deceive into following our senses. Not the spirit, but our senses. And it is sensual worship, that which appeals to the eye, that which appeals to the ear, that which is, appeals to the carnal appetites. And look at what is happening today. Look at what is called worship today. That appeals, great crowds gather. And there they are swinging their hands as they shout out and sing out a lot of rubbish. There they are, supposedly offering this to God as worship. The great battle is going on between those who worship the Lamb and those who worship the beast. And there is this clash between what is spiritual worship and what is sensual worship. We have to understand that much of what is being passed and condoned as Christianity, as the very stamp of the beast upon it. The worshippers of the Lamb are living in this society where everyone around them is given over to the sensualities connected with the worship of this beast. Now, time is gone. We haven't time left to go any further with it. But I trust that we're beginning to get a little bit of insight into what the Church of Jesus Christ is up against in this dark day. But we shall leave it there. And may the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy And eternal God, we rejoice that we have thy word as the more sure word of prophecy, that we can rely upon it as it accurately unfolds for us uh, the powers of darkness and the strategies of the beast and of the Powers of darkness, we pray that we would be mindful of thy word, that we would not be forgetful hearers of it, that we would lay it up in our hearts, that we would take it as our sword, the mighty sword of the Spirit, to stand in an evil day against the wiles of the wicked one. Grant us thankfulness that we have this day 
a little sanctuary to which we can come to offer to thee spiritual worship without any carnal embellishments. May our worship then be true worship. Receive as we pray, pardon us, accept us for the Redeemer's sake. Amen.